Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to teach students how to use a foreign language using authentic resources and relevant units. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Rebecca Bluewolf of Wellesley Middle School in Wellesley, Massachusetts. I want to first take a moment to thank all of the kind listeners who rate, review, or subscribe to the podcast. Because of you, Lesson Impossible made it into the top 100 at 94th place of podcasts in the education how-to category. By taking the time to click on a few stars or write a sentence or two, it makes it possible for more people to find the podcast, as well as encouraging me to keep interviewing more innovative and interesting educators, like this episode's guest, Rebecca Bluewolf. Rebecca and I share a similar background. We both started our careers intending to teach social studies, and we both found ourselves teaching French instead. To make a long story short, In my second year of teaching, I was given a contract that included teaching French because I was the most qualified of the unqualified. And then I fell in love with it. If you're interested in the much longer version of the story, I spoke about my journey to becoming a language teacher on Chris Broholm's Actual Fluency podcast, and I put a link in the show notes. Along with going back to school to become qualified for real, I was able to become better by finding role models online who represented the kind of language teacher that I aspired to be, and Rebecca Bluewolf is definitely one of them. And I'm not the only one who thinks she's amazing. The American Council of the Teaching of Foreign Languages, or ACTFL, named her the 2020 National Language Teacher of the Year. We spoke in early April, and as you'll be able to tell, I wasn't exactly able to conceal how big of a fan I am. For my listeners that don't obsessively stalk your Twitter like I do, if you could give a quick summary of who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Rebecca Blue Wolf, and I teach middle school French in a suburban school right outside of Boston, where I've been since 1998. And I was a pretty traditional textbook-based French teacher for many, many years until I went to a workshop with a trainer who talked about something called teaching for proficiency. And it was really about the students learning to use the language rather than learning about the language. And for whatever reason, when I heard that message in 2014, it sort of caught fire inside of me and I was no longer comfortable teaching the way that I had been taught and that I had been teaching for quite some time at that point. And so I went through this process of sort of rediscovering my profession. And as part of that, became very involved on Twitter in terms of trying to find people who were ahead of me on that particular learning journey and who would support me. Because locally, I only had a couple of connections of folks who knew a lot about proficiency-based teaching. And so that was sort of the start of this Un- unlearning of my teaching and 
just discovering a new way. And it's been really endlessly exciting. And I'm definitely only part there, part way there now. So that's, that's kind of where I'm in. I guess maybe I'll also add that I, I have two children of my own and my husband and I are both non-native French speakers and we speak only non-native French at home with our kids. So my home game and my away game have a lot of, a lot in common these days. And when you made the switch over to a proficiency based in your classroom, did that change any of the interactions that you were having at home? Maybe the opposite. I think raising two children in French at home gave me a greater tolerance for errors and the mixing of English and French that I was hearing from my own children and gave me greater confidence that an approach where I was presenting my students with whole language from authentic resources. So rather than showing them a textbook, I was selecting readings and audio, video made by French speakers for French speakers. And seeing my own kids being able to handle that, I think, inspired me to feel that, of course, I could expect that from my students who are quite you know, quite a bit older at that point than my own little babies were. And so when I started to hear my students making new kinds of errors, but also looking unintimidated by really any sort of text or video that I would put in front of them, I think I, I could see how that was a more, maybe we could say natural approach to learning a second language, even though it's happening in this very unnatural context of a 45 minute class every day. You mentioned authentic resources. Could you expand on that? But I am a big proponent of authentic resources over teacher-written resources. I don't really want to be in the position of, as a non-native speaker, trying to produce language that I'm looking for my students to imitate, if I can get around it. And I am not from a French-speaking country, so if I can find someone from Quebec or from Madagascar or from Senegal who's telling their story, I would much prefer to pick highlights from their storytelling and share those with my students rather than try to retell in my own words and risk injecting all of my own prejudices and thoughts about those matters. Do you ever find yourself reverting back to your old teaching style? I have like a huge debate within myself where I would say I start every school year very focused on, no, what I really care about is text type and comprehensibility. And if I understand the student's message, that's all I can expect. You know, actful guidelines make it very clear that novices are hard to understand. And even intermediates can only be understood by a sympathetic listener. And yet when, when I'm at home alone at night, start every school year very focused on, no, what I really care about is text type and comprehensibility. And if I understand the student's message, that's all I can expect. You know, actful guidelines make it very clear that novices are hard to understand. And even intermediates can only be understood by a sympathetic listener. And yet when, when I'm at home alone at night, reading over paragraph long pieces of writing by my students, I am at times haunted by some of those errors. And I think, oh my gosh, listen, this child has written an entire paragraph in infinitives. Do I really have faith in this way enough that I'm confident it's going to sort itself out? And so that is a struggle. And sometimes I will mark up a whole page with tons of purple marks. And then I'll look at it and sigh and say, Rebecca, you know, the child's not going to look at, learn anything from all those marks you've made on the page. <laughs> I still can't help myself. And you know what? I might need to go in the next day at lunch and say, guys, oh my gosh, I have kids who are writing a whole paragraph in the infinitive. And then someone else has to kind of talk me down. 
the students' misunderstandings about language will work themselves out with enough exposure and input. And just this idea that so much of the grammar that we see in a standard year one French textbook is grammar and structures that are acquired really very late for a language learner, I think has given me a lot of perspective about what's fair to expect from my students and what energy is well spent or wasted when I'm trying to get my students to be more accurate in their production. One of the things that I found that I struggle with is trying to explain to parents, parents who've only experienced a certain model of language learning, and trying to explain to them why I'm so invested in a proficiency model and why I think this is the way to go. And I find that the kids, a lot of them, they're they're on board. They're loving it. They're feeling affirmed in a way they maybe haven't felt affirmed in a language classroom. But the parents are are quite shocked. In world language, my experience has been when I talk to parents, you know, I only meet them once a year, pretty much. When I they come to back to school night and I say, how many of you studied a second language? Raise your hand. How many of you speak a second language well? Keep your hands up you know, 90% of the hands go down. Are there other people here who speak a second language well, but who didn't learn it in school? Could you put your hand up? Oh, tell me how you learned a language. Oh, you lived abroad. Oh, you stayed with a host family. Oh, you moved to a new country and you had to find your way. And then I sort of talk about how we try to make our language classrooms as close to that experience of traveling abroad for 45 minutes every day. Parents are very receptive to that. I think where it gets frustrating is if you have a child who's not successful on proficiency-based real-world task-type assessments, and then they're trying to figure out, how do I help my child succeed? It's so much more complicated than drill them on this vocabulary list. You know, It's like a really 360-degree kind of knowledge that you need in order to build up your proficiency. And there is yeah. a bit of a more of an art component to it than a science. And so I know, I know for my students too, you know, you could study everything we've already done to the cows come home and then you're faced with that authentic video and you're trying to figure out what's the purpose or main idea. That's tricky. And it's not something that you can, you know, just memorize these 10 words and be ready for. So then I'll usually talk to the kids about how, you know, I was a perfectionist when I was a middle schooler and it drove me crazy anytime I even got an A minus. So I can see why this would be really hard for you because you're just ready to go home and do so much work to study, but there's not even a way to really study. So then we have to talk about maybe how you can get more out of the 45 minutes you're spending in class every day rather than spending hours and hours studying fruitlessly at night, that kind of thing. I know I had one parent, I do a lot of improv in my classroom. One parent was very concerned about that. And I found the metaphor that got through to her the best was saying, you know, in your child's science classroom, yes, there's a component of teaching science and learning the concepts. But if that teacher said, we're never going into the lab to apply this, you would be outraged. So all I'm asking your child to do is apply the concepts that we're talking about in the classroom and these skits and activities and conversations, that's the lab. And I think that was a helpful metaphor, at least for that particular parent. Yeah. yeah. And I do, that actually reminds me when we have back to school night, I do show the parents a book called How to Swim. And I say to them, can you imagine if this was a class on swimming and all I provided your child with was a textbook that talked about how to swim, but we never got in the pool. That leads me to one of my favorite questions to ask. I have a lot of favorite questions to ask, but (laughs) what is a unit 
or a particular lesson that you are the most proud of? Well, one that's fresh in my mind that I think has a lot of potential in it was that last year we did a unit called A Meilleur Moi, A Better Me, and it came somewhat organically out of a study that had been run in my school about students' very high levels of stress and anxiety and quite a bit of data around student sleep and screen time and phone use. And we were coming into a unit about quality of life and work-life balance. And I had just done my training in project-based learning the previous summer. And so it was this kind of perfect storm of some real interesting data that we could dig into from our own school community that was there for the taking. Me trying to figure out a way to do more project-based learning with my students about something that was legitimately interesting and important to them. And then our existing thematic curriculum, which was really pointing towards some sort of a conversation about quality of life. And so that just ended up being an opportunity for students to do some self-study, first by learning about from some resources from French-speaking countries about how to take good care of oneself, and then the students starting to practice some of those techniques and strategies at home and journal about them in French in class and then eventually be able to survey their e-pals in France and put together little wellness kits for them with recommendations. And so that one had that nice flow from learning learning something from the outside world, learning something from our community, and then being able to create something that we could share with the global community. I was following along with that unit on Twitter and It's been really lovely. You're very generous with your resources and what you're doing in your classroom. You share so much and so freely. Has that been a conscious decision on your part or is that just what you decided to do and just went with it? That has been a very conscious decision on my part. And I have to say, whenever people say that to me, I'm a little shocked because I don't totally get what the alternative would be. I feel like when I share something, first of all, people will find mistakes, which is fantastic because when you've created something alone, you don't have a second pair of eyes on it until you give it to your students. And then all of a sudden you have 200 eyes on it and you're thinking, oh my gosh, how did I manage to make this big mistake on it? And to find, to have other people looking at your work and then have them show you what you're, have them show you what they're working on and being able to sort of up your practice in that way for me has been super helpful. And when I first started writing and sharing resources, you know, I really felt like I'm in such a place of privilege. I, you know, I have basically a life, lifelong job at the middle school where I teach. I have professional teacher status. I do make enough money to pay our rent and take care of our family together with my husband's job. And so I felt like the money I would earn from potentially selling some of the things I create would not be worth the trouble and wouldn't yield the satisfaction of just being able to, you know, connect really almost day with educators around the world who are writing to me and saying, oh, I'm in the middle of this unit and I can't find this video anymore, or I don't really understand what this activity was supposed to be. I love that connecting across, really across any sort of boundary. And um, I've been fortunate to just be able to share and not sort of need to work it as a second job. Being a public school teacher in Massachusetts is a pretty sustainable way of doing public education compared to some of the options across the United States. To kind of transition to where we are now, because it's a very different world, you've definitely embraced this remote learning very wholeheartedly. Can you share some of what you're doing now that the schools are shut down because of COVID-19? 
So it's very new, but I think for me, the priority has been connecting to my students through the target language about ourselves and our current unit of study. So definitely not trying to stretch anyone too far, but making sure that students are able to sort of feel that classroom community once again, that we can celebrate each other's birthdays together, little things like that. And then trying to take, and again, it's funny, we're in the same place of the year as that A Better Me unit was last year. And it's ironic in a way because it is it is not the moment to do a unit about screen time and it's half down sleep. So when I looked at that, I was like, okay, well, that's, that was the only folder you brought home when school closed, Rebecca. And I don't know why you did that, probably because you were in a panic. So it's clearly not a unit you're going to teach. But there was some stuff in there about how to relax and what do you do when you're stressed and looking at quality of life and maybe thinking about what our priorities are right now versus what they were just a month ago. I'm trying to look at the unit. The unit had begun with free time activities. So having the kids kind of consider how they're spending their free time now versus what they would like to be doing with their free time. So that, I mean, we're trying to be real about what's going on in the world without it being scary. So I want French class to feel that we're not totally in la-la land, but we're also not digging through these agonizing news sources that I'm sure most of us stay up late and get scared by. In terms of the language teaching in a remote way, are you doing the asynchronous or synchronous? Okay. So I have to say, and this, this was interesting, our department, I teach in quite a large middle school. I believe we have over 1,200 students. Our department was definitely very, very focused on getting to synchronous lessons as soon as we were possibly allowed to be back with the kids. So for me, what that has meant is I'm doing two synchronous lessons a week with each of the sections that I teach. And it's not perfect because I have some sections of 26 students. And if they all show up, that's way too many kids to have on a call. But I'm also in a pretty small apartment with my own two children and my husband. And I don't think I can pull off more than 10, 30 minute sections a week and be confident that I will be there on time and have something for us to do that will be worthwhile. So on the other three days of the week, when the kids don't have their live sessions, then I'm posting work on our learning management system and the kids are doing independent comprehension activities. They might be recording something that's going to play into a subsequent speaking or writing activity. They might be writing something small for me. So it's kind of a mix, but I really feel like the synchronous is where the magic happens. And all the feedback that I've got from the kids is, oh, it's a little weird to be on a video call, but that's motivating for me to show up for. That makes me want to do some of the other work. And the parents have said the kids feel really relieved to have something that looks like what school used to be. And I'm very intentional about still using the old slides that I used to use when I was displaying things on the interactive whiteboard and still having a can do so that the kids see like, this is still school. This is still Madame Blue Wolf's French eight or French six class. And, and I know how to do this. It's just, (laughs) it's just a different format. And I think as, as the weeks pass, you know, they're rolling out better technology for us to be able to do even more. Having kids at home, as well as the obligations you have to your students, are you finding that something easier or difficult to balance? That is sort of a nightmare. (laughs) I, I am not a domestic goddess. And so I really... 
kind of love escaping to my job from being a mom, frankly. And it is sort of my excuse to not do more of the mom work that is often thrust upon women in the United States who have young children. So, and during the day, it is tricky because my kids are younger. And so they don't necessarily know how to access the technology for their own learning experiences. And so I'm trying to sort of get up early, take care of everything for me as a human being, then take care of my children, launch them into their day, then go into my Madame Blue Wolf persona and give my lessons. And actually the rest of the day kind of unfolds like a mirror where I go back to my children and make sure all their needs are met. And then they go to bed and then I can do anything else that I need for me. So I'm finding if I skip the me stage at the beginning of the day, things get really ugly really fast. And I also can't really look at the news in between interacting with my children or my students because that sucks so much of my emotional energy away that I can't be present. Thinking then about going back to the classroom, which hopefully will be happening in September, what are some things that you're looking forward to doing? I am looking forward to sort of being reunited with all the physical prompts and props that help them succeed. So the poster at the front of the room that says Nous parlons français and the date being posted and the fact that I can point to some of the phrases that they might need because they're already posted on my walls. That will be a relief. And then just the company of my colleagues, you know, being able to teach a rotten class and go out into the hallway and say, oh my gosh, you will not believe what just happened. Or (laughs) I just did four corners and it was terrible. Can you please help me fix this for next period? So it it is an isolating way to teach right now. And we're doing a lot of Zoom stuff with my department for fun, for professional sharing, and then also some of it is required for administrative meetings. But I do, I do miss that face-to-face collaboration. That's kind of, to me, where all the magic happens. For new teachers coming to teaching uh, a world language, what would be your biggest piece of advice? I think if you can get your class running in a way that works for you and the kids, where you're using the target language all the time or nearly all the time, probably everything else can fall into place later, and you will still generate students who are confident users of that language. So to me, the target language use piece and having that, you know, discourse community where you're going back and forth with the kids and the kids are going back and forth between themselves and the language, that's the, that's the critical piece. I think if you're new to teaching and you're very young, like I was when I started teaching straight out of college, it's hard to figure out how to be the grown-up all the time and set limits, but you're also look more like a peer and you're, you're in some cases closer in age to your students than you are to your colleagues. So sort of finding your place in your professional world can be tricky. That just takes time. And who do you look for for inspiration? Where do you go when you're feeling, I need some new ideas? Twitter is definitely my professional home outside of my usual teaching home of Wellesley Middle School. So oftentimes I will just go out the door of my classroom and I can go up and down the hall and talk with all sorts of fantastic educators who will give me great ideas. And But if, it's, if I'm at home at night and I don't want to bother them in the evening, I love that I can post a question to Twitter or I can post an activity that was unsuccessful and just pop that LangChat handle on the tweet and get feedback basically instantly. 
So I spend a lot of time following teachers who I've met through Lang Chat. Folks like Lisa Shepard have been a huge inspiration to me, Amy Leonard, Natalia DeLott, the Creative Language Classroom blog ladies, Karen Megan, different podcasts that I listen to. We Teach Languages has given me- That's my favorite. That's an amazing podcast. And- uh, then all the actual books and their authors have also been big mentors to me, not necessarily through Twitter, but through reading the titles and being in touch with the authors sometimes when I had a question that I couldn't find an answer to. That has also been really, really helpful. Yeah, I'll post links to the people that you mentioned. And I think that's also a really good reminder that teachers love to teach no matter what the circumstance. I know oftentimes as a younger teacher, people are a little intimidated to reach out, but there's nothing a teacher loves more than to teach a fellow teacher. You know, when you email someone with a question, they're really happy to get back to you. Yes. Yes. And I do think when I was new to the whole Twitter link chat world, I remember like, you know, my hair would stand on end if like Paul Sandrock followed me on Twitter. I thought that was like, you know, I was just like on cloud nine for days. And then, you know, slowly I realized like, oh, I could just email Paul Sandrock my question. He's the education director of ActFall. And he would write back and tell me like, you know, these are not celebrities like Hollywood movie stars. These are real people who are, you know, will help you. And so there is a really, you know, we're very fortunate as teachers to have that culture in our profession that it's not some sort of cutthroat, one person's going to make it to the top kind of game. What would you say is an innovation that you are currently working on, but haven't feel that you've mastered or a practice in your teaching that you haven't mastered quite yet that you're working on? I would say differentiation and tiered instruction. I was actually just saying to my husband last night, you know, I went to this workshop. We had Leslie Gran come to our school in the fall and she gave a series of workshops that were really tremendous about tiering tasks in the language classroom. And then this year being what it has been, I just have not had time to really make that happen in my classroom. And I do find that doing anything for the first time for me is like this huge mental block. I'm much better off if someone gives me the first activity of a new type and then I modify it to use in my classroom. I just find that that's sort of the fake it till you make it model that works for me. And so I don't have a tiered activity that someone else has passed on to me that I can modify easily yet. And I actually, so last night I was saying to my husband, like, oh, I really plan to get on top of that this spring. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to do that with distance learning. Like that just might put me over the edge. So that is one where I'm at the very beginning stages. And I, I aspire to have one learning goal and be able to give students different paths according to their sort of current comfort level with the material, but I'm not there yet. And then my actual favorite question to ask everybody is if I were to give you unlimited funds, unlimited time, someone to clean your home and make your meals, what would your ideal school or classroom look like? Probably the biggest change would be much smaller classes. I teach at a school where, you know, someone else makes photocopies for us. And when I'm absent, there will be a sub. And we have all this new fancy technology and people to show us how to use it. So I don't feel that I want for much in terms of material goods. 
But I do feel that teaching classes, for example, of 26 students, I just don't know each child in the deep way that they are deserving to be known. So if I had a way to interact with maybe 15 kids at a time, I think I would just be able to tune into their needs and their current state a little bit better. Well, if people wanted to get in touch with you, find out more about what you're doing, how could they do that? Sure. So the best place to find me is probably on Twitter at Madame Blue Wolf, which is M-M-E, B as in boy, L-O-U-W-O-L-F-F, like Frank Frank. I also have a blog and there is a link on the blog to contact me if people wanted to reach out via email. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your enthusiasm for proficiency-based language. It was lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Aviva. So there you have it. Rebecca Bluewolf on why it's never too late to rethink your teaching practice. Why sharing your resources benefits you as well as others. And that teachers are normal people, even if you see them like rock stars. If you want to find out more about what innovative educators are doing around the world, go to LessonImpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues and rating and reviewing it on iTunes. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.